You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, a collection of stories and interviews from Rochester, gathered through a project aimed at preserving oral histories, about one man learning about his roots. And you were like, wait a minute. <laughs> <He's adopted. laughs> one small business and its lasting impact on the community. Because in America, if you are selling and it's popular and it's black, everybody's going to buy it. And one family processing the loss of a loved one to the AIDS virus. When he first got really sick, that's when he had you call the family to tell them that not only was he sick, but he was also gay. All that coming up on your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity. Produced in a full service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at rocvox.com. If you're a regular public media listener, you might be familiar with StoryCorps. They're a nonprofit with the mission of preserving and sharing stories to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. Last year, the StoryCorps team came to Rochester, remotely, of course, due to the pandemic, with the sole purpose of recording conversations between Rochesterians about their lives. We have three of those stories to share with you today. First, Michael Warfield and Thomas Warfield are brothers from a big family of foster kids and adopted kids. But only Michael grew up knowing he was adopted, while Thomas didn't find out until later in life. They talked about this revelation and how their family shaped who they are. As we grew up together, we know that I was a little bit different for a variety of reasons. You know, I had a a different last name growing up and I look a little different. And so I always knew that I was adopted. And then, of course, we had lots of foster kids coming in and out of the house. So it wasn't unusual for me to be different. And I did feel special because I was the one child who stayed, even though others came and left. But a little later in life, I found out Right now, I don't remember how I found out, but maybe I told you when I did that you had been adopted and you did not know that. How did that make you feel? So let me just go back to when you told me. I grew up thinking I was the biological child also. So you told me this when I was like 34. And the way you told me was um, (laughs) you were at Aunt Stella's house and she was talking to you about us. And in the conversation, she just says, well, you know, when you and Tommy were adopted, blah, blah, blah. And you were like, wait a minute. (laughs) Tommy's adopted. (laughs) And you called me and you you were like, oh, sit down. I got something to tell you. And I thought somebody died or something. And when you told me, I have to say, I didn't have a real reaction, actually. Just like, well, okay, well, what am I going to do about it now? You know, I like, I don't know. It just didn't have any. But I did the next morning and breakfast, ask daddy and mommy about it. 
I said to them, oh, you know, Michael told me that I was adopted. Oh, you had to throw me under the bus. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. And um, they didn't say a word. After a while, though, Mommy said, um, well, it doesn't matter. We're your parents. But anyway, it does kind of remind me of what I wanted to ask you about was raising children mm-hmm. and particularly foster kids. Because mm-hmm. if we grew up in this environment, like, did that play into like, oh, yeah, I need to be a foster parent? People say to me now, oh, I don't know how you can foster. You've got to give the kids back and it's got to be so tough. And I say, you know what? When you can provide just a safe space for a child to grow and be happy, you're doing something. And I always use the example of mommy because throughout all our life, kids have come back, oh, you're the best mother, you're the only mother that I ever really had. And, And that is so much, it's so valuable to them. Michael Warfield lives in North Long Beach, California and works for Blue Cross Blue Shield. Thomas Warfield is a dancer, singer, performing artist, educator, and the founder and artistic director at Peace Art International. Support for StoryCorps in Rochester comes from the Avangrid Foundation in partnership with RG&D, committed to advancing education and building sustainable communities. From City Blue Imaging Services, helping local businesses and organizations grow their brands through print, and Van Bortel Subaru, supporting programming that provides a platform for people to share their stories. One of our StoryCorps conversations focused on the longest-running tenant of the now-closed Midtown Plaza. It was a store called All Day Sunday. It opened in 1969 by Ruth and Jean Lockhart and quickly became a staple in the local Black community. Ruby spoke with former employees Zakia McAdams-King and Anthony King about the store's legacy. Our mission was a training socialist store which sold black products in Rochester, New York, and we catered to the black community, which really meant that we sold to everyone. Because in America, if you are selling and it's popular and it's black, everybody's gonna buy it. But our main focus was black people, black products, black pride, and black culture. We were there to make money while doing good in the community and giving back at the same time. The first time I walked into All Day Sunday, it was a sense of, I'm home. I was meant to be here. This awesome woman with dreadlocks and purple Birkenstocks and this bald-headed guy, they were just the most amazing in the world to me. And as I started working there, the biggest thing for me is Ruby and Jean allowed each and every one of their employees to be themselves. And if we were not aware of gifts or talents that we had, they knew those gifts and talents and they pushed us to be better than what we thought we were, which meant that we all became productive members of society. Everyone who worked at that store is doing something in some capacity right now that is edifying to someone else. That's true. I'd like to pick up on that because I've made that point to other people who were interested in starting a business similar to ours. Mm -hmm. 
In Rochester, New York, downtown Rochester was 80, 85% black people. The mall was 90% black on any given day because the school kids came through that mall. And how people were treated mattered to us because they were singled out, loud black kids running through the mall. So my husband and I would have to step in and go, they're no different than kids in suburban malls. So we made buying in Rochester in a store like ours user-friendly. We treated everyone with respect. We didn't prejudge anyone. I think we just, we created a whole culture behind that. You know, e even for me being impacted as a youngster, you know, as a preteen and I started my junior high days, I would catch the bus and that's how I got exposed to all day Sunday. So I was one of those kids, right, who would go by and just kind of go in the store and linger and maybe I could buy a button or maybe, you know, <laughs> back then name belts and different things like that. So I wasn't a big spender, but I was always, you know, received in, in, in that space. We may not have known at the time, right, what, what was being instilled in us, but those, those lessons, those values, you know, I picked that up at All Day Sunday. You guys may not have always known it, but I was paying attention. I was watching. <laughs> I know you were paying attention or else you would know you weren't paying attention. So that's the all day Sunday story. And uh, thanks guys for joining me. Ruby Lockhart is the retired executive director at Garth Fagan Dance. Zakia McAdams King and Anthony King are husband and wife and the co-owners of Cerebral Kingdom Bookstore. Hi, this is Megan Mack from WXXI, and if you're enjoying Earshot, subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. Catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson wherever you find your podcasts. And finally, the first cases of AIDS were reported in June 1981 and the virus carried the stigma of being a so-called gay disease. Sarah O'Brien and her mother, Beverly Badger, came together to remember Sarah's father, John, who died of AIDS in the late 1980s. I met him in church when I was in seventh grade, and we didn't like each other. After that, we both worked for a camp when we were in high school, and we started dating after camp. He thought he was gay before we got married when we were 18, but he didn't know. And we got married and had a baby and just played a normal life. And I just know that when I grew up, when you made a commitment like marriage, that was something that was lifetime. But I also understood it isn't really helpful for a marriage when a person is gay and the other person is straight. I remember you telling me, and then when he left, I didn't really understand the whole thing. You were six years old when he moved to Manhattan, and he was a really good dad, and he really wanted you in his life. I was young. I also remember walking down Christopher Street, and on the other side of the street, two men started kissing, and I was really taken aback by that. And so I remember dad asking me, why is this upsetting you? And I realized at that point, I oh, didn't like great. public display. I didn't care if you were a man or a woman. It's funny. I grew up from eight on being aware of the gay community. 
at a time when it wasn't mainstream media. And at that point, I think dad had taken a job that was internationally based. So he started traveling all around the world. I do know that when he was in Africa, he woke up in the middle of the night and he realized something was wrong. And it wasn't long after when he came home that he was diagnosed with. It was called ARP at the time, AIDS-related complex. And it was a week after they had approved AZT. So he was one of the first people in the country to be on AZT, which was like 12 grand a month. But fortunately, the gay men's health crisis had been pulling together to help manage all the people that were literally dying in the streets. He did get AZT and he was on it for a while. There were antivirals that were developed in Europe and he was able to get an antiviral through his work. Mm -hmm. When he first got really sick, that's when he had you call the family to tell them that not only was he sick, but he was also gay. And so both of his sisters immediately flew out to help. I know that his father and his father's brother, they sent literature to him telling him that you're dying because you're gay. This is God's way of punishing you and you deserve it. And he refused to communicate with them anymore. I mean, John suffered the last year, but he really loved you and he knew he was loved. And really, that's all any of us can ask for. John died on September 3rd, 1989, shortly before his 36th birthday. And funerals were held for him in Washington, D.C., New York City, and in Egypt. And that's it for Earshot. Special thanks to everyone who participated and shared their stories. You can hear all of these conversations in their entirety at wxxinews.org slash storycorps. That's core spelled C-O-R-P-S. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes in your feed every Friday. Find even more local news on our website, wxxinews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear, I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.